welcome everyone. Today is August 3rd, 2012, and we have an exciting topic today, Tools for Testing Mitochondrial Disorders, the Latest Advances in Genetics and Genomics. I'm Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MyoAction, and I'm really excited to welcome back our speaker today, which is Dr. Richard Bowles, who most of you know from his role at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, where he is um, the Director of Metabolic and Mitochondrial Disorders Clinic. Many of you may have heard Dr. Bowles in his really wonderful presentations on uh, functional mitochondrial disorders and dysautonomia that you can also find on the MitoAction website. And we're excited to have Dr. Bowles today talk a little bit about a new field that is really growing and really relevant for so many of you, and that's DNA sequencing and genomic sequencing and genetic testing. Um, Dr. Bowles, before I hand it over to you, let me just remind people who are listening to this recording that there are slides to accompany this presentation that you can find on the MitoAction blog on the page where this recording is hosted. So, Dr. Bowles, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Dr. Bowles, we'll go ahead and hand it over to you. Everyone can follow along on the slides, and if you'll just cue us when we need to go to the next slide, that would be great. Okay, let's go to the next slide now. Um, I'm going to try to dispel some of the magic that's involved in molecular testing, and I hope that there's a little bit more of an understanding at the end of this. And yes, that is my daughter. She's cute. Okay, next slide. Um, the obligatory potential conflicts of interest slide, because I wear very many hats here. Um, these are some of the hats. I am medical director at Cortigen, um, which is a company that's new in this area. Um, and you can see the logo on there. When you see the logo on the slides, I tried to put that in there as slides that are really particular to what we're doing at Cortigen, so that you'll know that that may or may not apply to other companies, but also that it I means that there is that potential conflict of interest because I am a consultant for them. Uh, most of the slides won't have that on there because it's really not relevant to one company or another, but for molecular testing in general. I am also a basic researcher. Um, and uh, applied researcher doing treatment protocols and um, genetic um, studies in mitochondrial disease and functional disease. And then I spent a lot of time treating patients too and have a very large mitochondrial clinic. So if you can go to the next slide. Well, there they are. That's a muscle fiber, a normal muscle fiber, and then those white things that you see, those ovals, those are the mitochondria. So that's what they really look like. So on the next slide, well, what really are mitochondria? Well, if you have a question, you can go to the Wikipedia. So if you go to the next one, the one that has Chewbacca on there, and then the next one after that, um, it, the Wikipedia will tell you all about it. The Medichlorians are the intelligent microscopic life forms that live symbiotically inside the cells of all living things. And then quite John Jen has a quote there about telling us about the force and everything. And then if you go yet to the next slide, you can see a picture on the Wikipedia on the left of a Medichlorian, and on the right is a real mitochondria. And I think that that's where they got the idea. But anyway, I put this in there not just because it's funny, but because they really are the force. They are the life force within us that make all the energy that we need. And that really needs to understand, to understand everything about mitochondria as well as the molecular testing. So the next slide... What is mitochondrial disease? And then you see the mad scientists on there. It's all about energy again, um, the, the energy for life. 
Okay, and then the next slide is what is mitochondrial disease, and then that's really kind of the definition, the genetic defects affecting the body's ability to make ATP. Now, I went through all of this before the molecular talks because I want to emphasize that the, the pathways to make ATP or energy are extremely varied. Um, if you go to the next slide, you see the crazy women on that slide? And so just keep going ahead until you see somebody in a straight jacket, because it's a little bit hard on this, this format. On the next slide, you can see that there are some of the issues um, regarding mitochondrial disease. Um, that the symptoms are never there when the specialist is, is examining you. They're never there when they do the laboratory test. Every laboratory test is different. Things go up and down. Everybody in the family has different disease. It's just the, the complexity is incredible there. And so the end result is that the patients are often not believed and that the patients often don't have a real diagnosis. Well, the exciting times now is that we're at the point um, that we can finally make a diagnosis in a, a much larger percentage, but certainly not everybody. The next slide is the simplified map of energy metabolism, and this is really the simplified map. I show this to medical students. It just, the basic thing to get across here is the complexity of metabolism, even when there are um, an extremely simplified map. Now, fat, carbohydrates, and proteins is what we're made out of, and that's what food is made out of. They're burned down to energy. At the bottom there is the mitochondria. Um, the electron transport chain, and everything goes in, into that to make energy. And then the next slide is the actual electron transport chain. Um, you can see the two layers of the mitochondria, the outer membrane, the inner membrane. I think this is slide 14 now. And I want to show, again, the complexity of this so to understand the molecular diagnosis and what's going on. There are the complexes one through five. But there are also, everything needs to be pumped or transported into mitochondria, and there are a very large number of transporters. All of the proteins which are in the mitochondria, except for the ones in the mitochondrial DNA, which is only 13, but all the other ones have to be imported. There's the import mechanism. There's all of the um, metabolic pathways. There's a tremendous amount of complexity that's involved in making a mitochondria, and that really comes into play when we do molecular diagnoses. Okay, the next slide shows uh, a little cartoon on the top of the mitochondrial DNA, and some of you might have seen ones like this. And then the one at the bottom is an actual electron micrograph of what mitochondrial DNA looks like. And then there's some information on there, 37 genes, 13 proteins, etc. Now, these 37 genes might not seem like much compared to the over 1,000 genes that make up a mitochondria, but the mitochondrial DNA is derived from bacteria, and it is the the molecular mechanisms are bacterial-like, and they have a very high mutation rate. And so these 37 genes cause a lot more disease than you'd expect by their number alone. Okay, the next slide is slide 16. This talks about the basics. Um, and then the complexity is involved in that there's the 13 proteins that are made by the mitochondrial DNA. They're made inside the mitochondria. It's maternally inherited. But then there's over 1,000 proteins. There's actually 1,088 that are known at this point that are made by the nuclear DNA, and they have to be imported into mitochondria. So the mitochondria is the proteins that are made by the mitochondrial DNA, just the 13 of them. 
and the 1,088 proteins which are made in the nucleus. Um, and then the ones that come from the nucleus, they have a variety of in inheritance models, recessive, dominant, X-linked, et cetera. And so this is really where some of the complexity of molecular comes across. Okay, next slide, 17. How do we get an exact diagnosis? I put two children on there on purpose. The one on the top, he is still waiting a diagnosis and is going to be going through this testing. And the one on the bottom does have an exact diagnosis um, based on molecular testing. So how do you get one? The next slide is number 18. Um, this slide was put together in the dark ages of molecular genetics. I think it's as old as two years ago. And I used it to explain to people what was available at the time. There was the mitochondrial DNA analysis. You can do the nuclear testing. And you can see some of the things are in there, the Cox deficiency, Mingi, depletion, and those things. But this has really been the um, what we can do now compared to what we can do just two years ago is, is incredibly different. Okay, the next slide, number 19, is you can kind of see that from the size of the of the other things in the room. That's a Sanger sequencing machine. That's what actually a DNA sequencing machine looked like a couple of years ago, and we still use those today. And on the slide after that, you see that's what a Sanger sequence looks like. That's a typical DNA sequence that would have been done from a DNA test oh, about two years ago. And most of the tests that are done by most of the labs still use this technology. And each of the peaks is another nucleotide, and the colors referred to before different ones it can be, A, C, G, and T. And then um, in this particular one, you see that there's four different lanes. Those are four different patients. And if you have really good eyes, you can tell where the mutation is at um, a T to C, or C to T, I should say, about two-thirds of the way down. And, of course, we have to look at thousands of those peaks. But if you want to look at, let's say, 15 million peaks, which is what we really do today on a routine basis, you can see that Sanger sequencing is going to be a bit difficult to look at 15 million peaks, and we need new machinery. Slide 21 shows how the explosion of sequencing capability has been over the last few years. Um, Moore's law, by the way, is the idea that the um, in in electronics, the ability to store data electronically um, in, in a chip doubles every couple years or so. And you can see that um, sequencing ability has actually outstripped Moore's law. If you look at the left side of the slide, this was just 10 years ago. It cost uh, $100 million to sequence one person's genome. That means all of the, all of the nucleotides in a single person. And in 2002, really, the first sequence of the first human was made at the cost of about $100 million. That was the general project. But now we can sequence the person for about $2,000. Um, the difference is amazing in terms of there's the technology, yes, but there's also the bioinformatics. How do you, in, how do you account for all that information? How do you interpret it? And I'm going to try to open the black box on that a little bit, but it is very complicated. The main issue now is not the sequencing. You can sequence somebody for $2,000, but who's going to interpret those 3 billion nucleotides? Um, that's where the problem is. That's where the expense is, and that's where the difficulty lies. Next slide, um, slide 22. 
So the emerging standard that we have right now is that we can do mitochondrial DNA sequencing, not just looking for specific nucleotides like Nalus, Merck, or those other ones, but the whole molecule, the whole 16,569 nucleotides. And we can sequence each one tens of thousands of times so that you can get heteroplasmy information. In other words, if there's more than one base at a particular nucleotide, which is important um, because a lot of diseases are heteroplasmic. And then the second one on there is what we call the mitoexome. The exome is just all of the all of the DNA sequences which are make a protein or an RNA. It doesn't include the regulatory sequences and some what used to be called junk DNA. It does something, but it doesn't code for a protein. The exome are just the nucleotides which actually code for a protein, the genes. In other words, we sequence all the genes. And then there's 1,088 that are known in the mitochondria. And then that's really something that's just become um, available in terms of research in the last year and commercially just as much. The next slide is 23. There are four DNA sequences in a row. If you look carefully, you can see four different screens. And to the left of each screen, you see kind of a little machine. Um, those are the DNA sequences that are actually, that's a picture of the lab at Cortigen. And those are the DNA sequences we use now to sequence the over 1,000 genes that are in the mitochondria. So you can see that not only does the technology becomes much more, um, it becomes much less expensive and it becomes much more powerful, but also it becomes a lot smaller. Okay, the next slide is 24. I'm not going to really go into this. I'm going to leave some of the magic there. It's really complex as to how you, how the machine figures out the DNA code. But um, you can, that material is available if you want to. It's a little chip that you see on the left side, and it does the sequencing. Okay, so slide 25. This is the first one of the Cortigen slides. This says about the tests that are available at Cortigen today. There's the two tests tests for all of the proteins that are in the mitochondria, all the ones that are known, and, and virtually all the ones that are there. This, first of all, is the, um, on the left-hand side, you see the MitoSeq test, the N-T-F-E-E-K, we call MitoSeq. Um, this will sequence the 37 genes in the mitochondrial genome. It sequences the entire mitochondrial DNA. And then the one on the right, the NukeSeq, this analyzes approximately 1,100 genes in the cell that are nuclear encoded. In other words, these are genes which are in the nucleus, in the chromosomes that come from both parents that make proteins which make up a mitochondria. So together, these tests test for virtually every protein in the mitochondria. They're different because the mitochondrial DNA is a, it's a very different molecule. It requires a, a different approach, and the, therefore there's two tests. Okay, slide 26 is just a shot of the, um, the screen, just to give you an idea of the type of output that comes up. We have continuous output to show us if the sequencer is working appropriately and that we're getting the right amount of sequences so that we can interpret it correctly. Okay, slides 27 and 28 are where you can zone out if you don't want to hear the details. Um, they are a bit complicated. You can look at them later. But to understand the power and limitations of massive sequencing, I did want to go into a little bit as to what it is that we're doing. I mean, 
if you can sequence the entire person for $2,000, why does it cost $15,000 to do um, only the mitochondrial genes? Well, this will give you some of the idea. Um, when you do basic sequencing, you're given a hard drive that comes by the mail, and the entire hard drive has the sequence in it. I mean, a large hard drive that arrives by mail can only have a sequence of two people on it. Um, but it's filled with numbers. Interpreting it is really the 99% of the difficulty at this point. So first thing is that this is the computer compares the sequence of the individual against the reference sequence. Um, the reference sequence was based upon sequencing thousands of different people. And then you look for all the variants. You look for everything which is different than the standard sequence. The standard sequence is the most common sequence among the thousands of people. So when you do the mitochondrial exome, or the 1,100 genes in the mitochondria, you get about 3,000 variants. The average person has about 3,000 variants. Now, obviously, um, I can't look at 3,000 variants in an intelligent way on each person, um, but a computer can. So the first thing we do is we look at coverage. Um, how many times each space was measured. Um, that's important because we don't want junk in there. We don't want to put anything in there that's not correct. We only want to look at bases which have been sequenced uh, enough times that we're absolutely positive that it's correct. The second thing is we look to see if it's actually in a gene sequence. At this point right now, we're not looking at the introns, which are areas that don't encode the genes, the proteins. We're only looking at the actual gene sequence that will change the, what a protein would do. Um, and we're not looking at changes which are what we call silent or synonymous. They are changes in the DNA code, but they don't change the protein code because there are many different ways to code for the same amino acids. So those are also filtered out um, in the software. Once we do all that, we cut 3,000 variants down to 300 variants. Then we take a look to see which ones are common. If something is found in 10% of the population, it's probably not the mutation which has caused your child's disease. So we put a filter at 1%. Um, in reality, ones that are less than 0.2% or so are the ones that are important. But I wanted to put a high filter um, so that things would I would look at things that probably are not important but just might be. So anything that's greater than 1% is filtered out. So... Next slide. So at the end of that, I get about 30 variants from each person, which looks like it changes the protein code and is rare. Uh, most of them are extremely rare, like they've never been seen before. So how do I tell what is going on with those, those 30 variants? Um, those 30 variants are sent for several different computer programs. First one, again, we've already talked about is prevalence. If it's never been seen before, it's much more likely to be important than if it's seen in 1% of the population. The next one is conservation. This is very complicated, but it's basically how often is it seen in other species. If the mutation that we found is seen in chimpanzees and orangutans and a lot of similar species, then it probably is not important. Um, but if, if it's never seen, if, nobody, if no species has that all the way down um, to, the, say, jellyfish, then it's probably something that's very important. The computer actually calculates the likelihood of this being random. In other words, that in evolution, that it, this nucleotide is really not important. 
and it just shows random evolution versus if it's important and then it won't be changed. I know it's very complicated, but it gives me a number in regards to what the probability is, is that nucleotide is important. And actually look at the species involved. Um, if a gene is not, if the nucleotide is not seen in, let's say, fish and starfish and, and jellyfish and, you know, and worms, but every single mammal has it, the same sequence. Um, then it probably is important for mammals, and it might be important for something, let's say, like autism or something that's involved in higher thinking. So it's not just the number of species, but the species that are involved, and we actually get pretty detailed on some of that. The next one is protein function. We have three computer algorithms which actually take the protein, put the mutation into it, and then computer regenerate and refold the protein and look at the function of the protein. There's three different algorithms use very different ways of looking at it. Um, and so there's three different ways of looking at it to see how it would change. So all of that information is integrated together. And when I look at each of the, the sequence changes, I have to think about all that information. So what is that end? At the end is that something which is deleterious or might cause disease. It's something which is probably rare. It's something which is conserved in evolution, and it's something which predicts protein function changes. We still find several of them in every individual. So then we get down to I have to actually look to see what's known about that gene. If it's a gene in a metabolic pathway, and it's known that that's a recessive gene, meaning you need two copies to cause disease, and we only see one mutation, then that's probably not the cause. It's probably that person's a carrier. We're all carriers of something. Um, we're actually all carriers of many disorders. And I never see anyone that's not a carrier of something. But if we see two mutations in the gene that look like it knocks out function, then that's probably what it is, and then we might want to do more testing. Um, also, I have to look at, there's a lot of genes that can cause disease in a dominant fashion, meaning if you have one mutation, it can cause disease by about one gene that's knocked out causes trouble. It, 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 it causes mischief, that one mutation, or just half is not enough. Um, so I actually look at what is known about the function of every single one of the genes that comes up with any variants that look like they might be a problem, and I integrate that with the clinical information on the patient to see if it makes any sense that something in that gene might be a problem. So why did I go through all of that complexity? First of all, I want you to understand that this is you know, very difficult, and it's not like you, the printout says positive or negative. It requires a lot of work and thought. And second of all, it's that the clinical information that's, that's reported is very important. If we don't know what's wrong with a patient, we can do our best to do an interpretation, but it's not going to be nearly as good as if I know, you know, some detailed clinical information on the patient. So please try to get the clinic, you know, have the physician or yourself give us the clinical information if you order the test or if you send it to another laboratory, because this information is useful for everybody. Next slide. Okay, this is slide 29 now, and you'll see that there are the ovals or circles of um, green, blue, and orange. The other complexity involved is looking at the nucleotides, which they may be rare, but they define a certain group of people that come from a certain place. Um, if you're from, let's say, Sri Lanka, or from Kuwait, or from Mozambique, or some other population, the numbers 
that we have in the database, which has mostly been generated from the United States and Europe, may not apply to you in that sequence variants, which are rare in white populations, are perhaps very common in populations from you know, one of the Pacific Islands. So, so we need to have information on the ethnicity of the individual, and that really needs to come to report. And we need to integrate what we know. Um, if it's this Indian tribe from a place that has not been tested, then we're going to do our best to understand the genetics of the people in that area. Um, and it, our interpretation is going to be a little bit more difficult. But another issue is really the is that what's normal for one group is not necessarily normal for another group, and there are different variants in different places. This slide shows you the, the evolution of people in regards to women from their mitochondrial DNA. Is that people started in Africa on the lower right-hand side and then moved into Europe and Asia from then, and you can see that um, there were two populations that moved into Asia, one from the west side, which is famously European population, and one from the east side. So really the two migrations out of Africa, one that went north into Central Asia and then went east um, and west into Europe, and then one that went into India and into Asia through that, through that route. Um, and so the information on ethnicity is important, but we also, we integrate this information, and when I look at the DNA sequences, I do the best to look at it from the standpoint of the group that the person belongs to. Um, most of the patients that we get are of um, Caucasian populations, and that's not usually as much of a problem, and there's significant amount of data from the Chinese and Japanese populations that are sequenced, but many other populations we just don't have as much data on at this point, and that's being gathered. Okay, um, slide 30. I want to throw some data in here because I want to show you that one of the things that we do at Cortigen is that we not only do we validate our studies, but we look at all of the um, data that we had, and we go over it in what's called data mining. Is we're constantly looking at the data that we got to make sure that our tests are working as best as possible, and that we can interpret the data as, as best as we can. So you see that there are three different graphs up there, are three different tables. The first table is looking at the um, the nucleotides. So the this is the mitochondrial DNA. Um, the red, the known, these are known mutations like 3, 2, 4, 3, and Malus. These are mutations which are well established in the literature as causing disease. The yellow ones are the kind of the ones that are interesting. Those are the ones that are computer um, simulation. And when I look at all of the different data, predicts this should be a mutation. Although it's never been reported before, it should be a mutation. I'm going to skip now to the green. The green are the ones that... I looked at and I said, this might be of interest, this is something that's unusual, but the computer thinks of it as normal, and I think of it as normal as well. And then the unclear is really, I really can't tell um, if it's normal or abnormal. Um, and so those are the four different, and those are the four different ways in which we score any variance or any change in the DNA code. So if you look at the top line, positive controls, these are ones that colleagues of mine had sent us that they had a mutation that they already knew about, and they sent it to us blinded to see if we could find it. Um, well, two of them are clear mutations. One was 3243, and the other one was um, 8993, um, known mutations. And then two of them were ones in which 
they, they thought they might be mutations, but when we did the computer simulation, we're not sure. But we found all four of them. Um, the next one are the negative controls. Um, that, what are negative controls? Those are so-called normal people. Well, maybe not so normal people. They're Cordigen employees. I'm one of them as well. So if, if I'm normal, then that's the negative control. But any, anyway, you can see that we found 38 variants. 32 were scored as normal by the computer, and 6 were scored as unclear. So a lot of the unclear variants are really normal, I presume. But none of them were scored as being abnormal, and that's good, because we don't want to find people that are healthy that have mutations that's showing us that we're overcalling. The next one are clinical cases, and these almost all came from two expert mitre docs on the East Coast and, um, and Midwest. And as you can see that a lot of the variants that we find in the clinical cases are normal as expected or unclear. But we also found three known mutations that they didn't know about before, and three that were determined as mutations based upon the computer algorithm, and that they're um, going to be doing additional testing. So that really is our, one of our validations. And as we get more patients, we do more validation to determine that, that we're really getting the right data. The next one, the one in the middle, is I'm excited about is new information that we haven't published yet that we will. Um, heteroplasmy or changes in the DNA code that are um, that you, you have two codes. You have like a T and a C of the same nucleotide. Um, one heteroplasmic change is pretty normal, and um, negative controls, as you can see, we saw quite a few heteroplasmies. But two or more heteroplasmies only occurred in the clinical cases, never in the negative control. So that means that individuals that have two or more heteroplasmies, that's a marker that there's something wrong. And so that's, and that's only, that's nine out of about 38 cases or so. So about one quarter of the clinical cases that were sent to us because they thought they might have mitochondrial disease that had no exact diagnosis, we were able to find something right there. And that suggests that the mitochondrial mutation rate is high. Um, for time, I'm not going to go for the last one, but you can see that the clinical cases had a lot more probable oranges of probable mutations and the negative controls. We didn't find any that looked like mutations. The next one is what a report actually looks like from Cortigen. This is now a nuke-seq that goes over the 1,100 genes. Um, I know this is really hard to read on this, but you can see that we're trying to make the interpretation that's really easy for the doctor to understand not only what is there, but what to do about it. This was an abnormal that we found out of the first five that we did. Um, the slide after that is a blow-up of the table. This is an actual table of all of the variants that were flagged by the computer as being potentially deleterious, and that I went through. And then you can see all the different ways that we look at it, um, the different protein um, the, the calculations that are done by the different mechanisms, and the one in the far right is the frequency. If this is 0.0, it's never been seen before. So this just gives you some of the idea that the data that we get and um, the genes and the function, and then about halfway through the table, the columns that are in the middle, the name of the genes, and then the reference number that I can just, I just click on that, and it sends me to the um, NIH um, site that says everything is known about that gene. Okay, now to slide 33. Um, these are really what I, I consider the competitive features of the Cortigen test. Um, is, you know, what is it that this test can do? Well, first of all, spit and send. Um, 
I wanted to make sure that this is done in saliva because I know how difficult it is to get blood and to send it off and laboratories won't do it to send it off and all sorts of problems. The kit is sent to you, you open it up, you spit in it, you close it and you put it in the envelope which already has the postage and the address on it. It's that easy. Um, we do more genes. There are competitors out there that are starting to do this. There's a couple out there. One of them does about 100 genes, and one of them does about 500 genes. But we're the only one at this point that does all of the genes in the mitochondria, or essentially everyone, um, 1,088. Um, the next one, Um We do 1,100 now, but in August, we are gearing up to do 1,300 genes. So what's the difference? Why are you doing 1,300 if there's only 1,100 in the mitochondria? Well, I wanted to throw everything in there that looks mitochondrial. So proxysomal disorders, um, neuronal steroid lipofusinosis, um, angel man, rat. I mean, everything in there that could possibly look mitochondrial. There's about 200 genes. I've asked my colleagues, friends, everyone, what have you seen that looked like mitochondrial disease? You made another diagnosis, and they gave me everything. So this test will not just look for mitochondrial disease, but anything that anyone has seen that looks like that. So it also, when you do this test, you're sequencing for Angelman syndrome, you're sequencing for Rett syndrome, um, all of these things. The next one here, better coverage. This one is very important to understand. Um, exome sequencing is out there. You can, for $6,000, some places less, you can sequence every single gene in your body for a lot less than the corrigin. So why not do that? Well, the problem is, is that exome sequencing, the coverage is not all that great. For the mitochondrial genes, you're talking about coverage is about 65 to 70% for most of the genes, especially most of the important genes. That means is that you're missing about a third of the mutations when you do exome. So, well, that's okay. I get two-thirds, right? Well, not really because you need to find both mutations. If you miss a third of them on one and you miss a third of them on the other, you're really only catching about a third of the patients that way. So you're missing most of them. The other problem is that um, they, don't, they look at 22,000 genes, so they really can't look at each gene very carefully. When we're looking at the 1,100 genes, we have the software that we look at them much more detailed than exome. Again, the, the interpretation is really what, what you're getting with this test. So you're saying, okay, so you can do greater than 95%. So worst case scenario, let's say 95%. So you miss 5% on one and 5% on the other. So you're really missing 10%. Um, not really, because if we find one mutation, we look very carefully for the other one, and we also alert the doctor that we found the carrier status on that one. And if that disease, if that gene looks like it might be the problem in your patient, to consider that, that we might have missed the other one. So we really are picking up 98% or so when you look at it that way. The next one, pseudogene proof. There are 1,513 genes that look exactly like mitochondrial genes, because they are. Throughout evolution, they were moved to other locations, and they're deactivated. But if you're not very careful, you can sequence them and show up a mutation that doesn't exist. We have been very careful to remove the pseudogenes from our, from our processes, and that we are very comfortable to say that pseudogenes will not show up as mutations or they will not obscure our results. Um, there's a bunch of things about validation. We run controls in every run. We do all the validations. Um, we also, mitochondrial DNA testing, we do deletion testing. You don't have to do any other tests. If you send up the mitoseq, we check for large deletions as well. So there's not a separate test you need to do. Um, because we have the, um, 
because we're automating everything, um, our turnaround time is much better. We are looking at a six-week turnaround time versus many months or up to a year from the competitive laboratories because they use a lot less automation. Uh, I've already gone over some of the stuff here. The, um, the testing interpretation. Oh, there's a couple of things I do want to, to, to cover here. First of all is that um, the data mining that we do, if like cyclic bombing is one of the things I'm very interested in. We will be looking at all the patients that, that say that they have cyclic vomiting and go back and mine the data once we have enough samples and look for things like polymorphisms. Remember I said that we put a filter at 1%? Well, every single mutation, even if it's seen in 40% of the population, is going to, it goes into a database, every single, every single variant. And once we have, you know, 10, 20 patients with pseudo-obstruction, with mitoautism, with cyclic vomiting, with any of these phenotypes, we will look at all that data and say, what do they have in common? Do they have any polymorphisms? So that's really important because the two polymorphisms or DNA changes that I have published that are associated with cyclic vomiting syndrome, there, one of them is found in 28% of the population and one of them is found in 32% of the population. So it's not always a very rare mutation. When those two are found together, it predicts cyclic vomiting syndrome, but you won't get that unless you do the mining. So we have a commitment to go back and look at the data as time goes on and do the, and do the data mining. Um, and also, but we're not going to be giving you information such as, you know, cancer risks and risks for, you know, things that are not related to mitochondrial disease. We're also, we're looking just at mitochondrial genes, and though we don't know what the power of genetics will mean even six months from now versus, you know, six years from now, we're going to do our best to not give extraneous information. Um, next slide. So what, do, what can this mean? to you. What does this mean other than just having a name on it? Well, obviously that you've proven exact diagnosis. You don't need to do additional diagnostic tests. Um, you can, and you have finally have an answer. You can also justify mitochondrial treatments. Do any of you get to the point that you go into the hospital and they say, well, you don't have proven mitochondrial disease. We'll give you steroids. Or why do you need D10? You don't really have this disorder anyway, or they, they, you get antibiotics which can affect mitochondria. You have an exact diagnosis. You can prove it to everybody, and it justifies the treatments and the precautions. There's also the mode of inheritance. It's this, it's this, how is this inherited in the family? You know, will my other children have it? Will my unaffected daughter, will her children have it? To determine the mode of inheritance and also to test other relatives can be very helpful. Um, guide therapy. Which cofactors are likely to work, which ones won't? Cofactors are very finicky. Some of them can take up to six months really to kick in, and they really need to have extremely high doses in some of them to make a difference. Once we have this information, we can say, well, CoQ is likely not to work, but vitamin C is likely to work based upon the abnormality. And then we can really push the cofactors where they need to go. And actually, with my patients, this data has been very helpful in some patients in this regard. Once in which I say, oh, you just need more Q, we find that the answer has nothing to do with that. The answer is in antioxidants. And so then I use vitamin C, vitamin E, and a lot of other antioxidants. The patient gets better. But I wouldn't have done that otherwise. Um, there's also, you know, it might suggest new therapies. Has this happened before? Well, it certainly doesn't happen in every case. I don't want to mislead you, but there have been cases in which it's come up with a therapy I never would have thought of before. I've tried it in the patient. Sometimes it seems to help. Sometimes it doesn't do anything. Sometimes it makes a huge difference. But if you don't know what the problem is, you, 
you really kind of stuck to just throwing things at it. And that's not always the best approach, although it's better than nothing. There's also the investment in, in future knowledge. Yes, you're helping research by that, um, but it's also it, you're helping yourself. We might not give you an answer in six weeks when you get the results, but we might have an answer six months or years down the road as we mine the data as I've, as I've gone over. And the last thing I want to say is that this is all very new, and we really don't know what all the advantages are, and I can't give you percentages. I can say that I've done this on my several of my patients. Some of them have we found the answer, some of them we didn't, some of them we found the answer, it did make a difference, some of them it didn't. I really don't have percentages, but we'll find out as we go along. Okay, limitations. Um, first of all, for, for very complicated methods, it's believed that there's about a, a 150 mitochondrial genes that aren't in the mitocarda. As these genes are discovered, we add them to our table. But So we have about about a predicted 90% of the genes in the mitochondria are tested for. Um, phenocopies, yeah, we add about 200 genes, but it probably is not everything. 95% um, is still not 100%. You can have mutations in other areas, such as the promoter and other things that account for the other 5%. Um, the interpretation is not perfect. We do everything that we can to try to find the mutations, but it's, you, know, it, you can't be perfect on that. We might find one mutation that might actually cause the disease, and we don't recognize that because we don't know anything about the gene, and we call it the carrier status. And then I put this one as a, in, in a different color because some patients have polygenic disease. It's not just one mutation which causes the disease, but it's more than one mutation and more than one gene. And that's where really the data mining goes in there and that we can look at this. And so that's what we really need is to collect this data over time. We are going to make diagnoses and we are going to help people up front, but probably there's going to be also a group that's going to have later diagnosis and won't be helped later on. And then, of course, there are probably ones we won't find. So slide 36, how do you get started? What do you need to do this? Um, well, saliva is really easy to get. There's a lot of questions that said, well, what about diet, time of day and everything? Well, you're, you're not supposed to spit right after a meal. You're supposed to have been like 20, 30 minutes after you eat. But other than that, it really doesn't matter. Um, this is DNA. It doesn't matter what treatment it's on. It doesn't matter what time of the day it is. We just need the saliva to get the DNA out of it. Um, the next one is the physician order. Um, all the doctor needs to do, it can be on an email, it can be on a prescription form, is to order the test and on the patient. Um, it's, oh, by the way, Children's LA, it's not John Doe, but it's Juan Garcia. Um, for our population. And it is the law. If you're doing diagnostic testing, you need a physician order. There are companies out there that are direct to consumers, but they're doing things that are for, like, nutritional purposes or for information on ethnicity. It's not for diagnosing the disease. For diagnosing the disease, federal law requires the doctor to um, that approves the test. Okay, so the third one is the authorization for the insurance company. This is the hard one. The rules vary from state to state. Cortigen is here to help you. Cortigen will help you get the authorization to go through and figure out what the state rules are and everything and discuss with you what liability there is. And um, John Lennon is going to be on the phone right after me to go over that a little bit more because, honestly, I find insurance matters more difficult to understand than molecular genetics. Okay, what test? Who to test? Do you test the NUC, the MitoSeq, both of them, neither, my child only, mother two, siblings? Um, there's no easy answer to this. But if you go to slide 38, maternal inheritance. Um, if your family looks 
like everybody that has the same mitochondrial DNA that's related for women have all different diseases, doing the mitochondrial DNA first is the way to go. It's the easier test, um, the less expensive, and that's the, the, the best bang for the buck. But other than that, you really, it, there's really not that much. There's the next slide after that kind of gives you some ideas. If disease is severe and occurred infantile onset, occurred, you know, say it happened before school age, it's more likely to be recessive unless you come from a family that's maternally inherited. So the nuke would be the first one to go. Um, if it's later onset, after you start school and the disease is more mild, then the mitochondrial DNA would be first. But it's, these are just basic guidelines. Um, the next slide, number 40, is a pair of um, patients of mine. They're identical twins, by the way. Um, they both have um, disease, which occurred as babies, and the one on the right has severe disease. Um, everyone would predict that they would be um, nuclear encoded, but they actually have the malus mutation on the mitochondrial DNA. So things are not perfect. I also bring that up. It says, well, who should I test? I have two children, and they both are affected. Um, we suggest at this point to test the one that's the most affected. And then based upon that, there may or may not be reasons to test other people. There are situations in which I'm testing two siblings, such as one sibling, there's maternal inheritance in the family. We already have the mitochondrial DNA mutation, um, but one of the siblings is hardly affected at all, and the other one's very severe. So we know there's something on the, on the nuclear DNA that makes the difference. So we sequence both of them to figure out the difference to see if we can figure out the gene that protects the one that's mildly affected that might give me an idea of therapy. So there are exceptions, but in general, the more severe individual in the family is the one to test, at least at first. Um, I'm not going to go through slide 41 very much, um, but I just want to say that there are a lot of things that connect mitochondria and autism, and that Cortigen is setting up a special autism test. Hopefully, we'll be ready in the next month or year or so that we'll test for all known genetic causes of autism in and out of the mitochondria. Um, and then um, slide 42 is something to um, to talk about to people, and that this is um, some is a call to arms. And I'm glad that all of you are at the um, the MitoAction website and learning about this. And these disorders are common, and there's they deserve more attention that they're getting, and anything that you can do can help. And that's it. Right. Dr. Bowles, um, you're really in your element. You know so much about this that you just speak very well about it, and it's it's a lot to absorb, but um, you explain it very well. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, and John as uh, Dr. Bowles mentioned, is on the phone as well. Because MitoAction has had the opportunity, and um, me in particular, with some of the physicians from our medical advisory board, to connect as partners with Cortigen um, and learn more about what they're doing. And I find it very exciting because I always appreciate a company who is really interested in partnership and interested in serving our patient community and in developing um, the field for the good of the patients and families. And um, I always really appreciate that. And I think that there has, um, it, it's been tough. As this field has grown, the number of patients has um, exceeded the number of specialists available to see them. And there's been confusion about which way to turn for testing. So it's great to be able to have options and to be able to know that you um, have companies like Cortigen that you can trust. 
one of the questions a couple of you emailed me prior to the talk asking about insurance. You know, what do you do about insurance? And I think this is very valid. And uh, I'm going to ask John to speak about that because we do find, right, that as families, we're in this catch-22 where if you get the testing and it's negative, then you never are allowed to get the testing again because your insurance paid for it once. But if you don't get the testing, then you can't necessarily get the therapies covered because you don't have the diagnosis. So, so what are you supposed to do and, and how can you approach that? So, John, why don't you introduce yourself and maybe speak about that for a minute? Hi, this is John Lenan. Um, Christy had shared some of the questions that were asked related to insurance. Um, so we thought it would be best to kind of describe what we do here at uh, Cortigen in terms of the insurance policies. Then we can jump to some of the technical questions that you may want to ask Rick about the testing. So in general, we understand the minefield associated with dealing with the insurance companies. Um, state by state, insurance company by insurance company, they each have different policies. So in setting up our testing protocols, we actually work with some contracted groups that will work to do our pre-authorization, uh, take the burden of doing that with the insurance companies. In some cases, we will work with the insurance company for a specific contract on a specific patient sample uh, so we can come to an agreement on payment. And in other cases, we'll work to contract with the insurance company so that we can have a fixed cost of reimbursement for all patients who are associated with that insurance company. So we literally work um, with the insurance company pre-testing. Uh, and then after testing, and we've done the billing with the insurance companies, we work with the insurance companies post-testing also. Uh, if uh, a test is rejected or uh, a reimbursement, is questioned, um, we also take the burden to resubmit that through the insurance company and try to maximize as much as we can for um, the patients. Um, we've also developed some programs um, where we can cap the amount of out-of-pocket dollars that a patient will be responsible for for some of our testing. Um, as I mentioned, uh, each one of these insurance programs uh, follow various state and federal guidelines, so we don't have a university, universal policy, but we try the best that we can at uh, letting the patients know um, what their out-of-pocket will be, what will be reimbursed by the insurance company so that they can decide to move forward with the testing. Um, some, te some states have laws in place um, and that we cannot do those programs, so based on what state you're in, uh, we can talk individually one-on-one -on, -one on that. Uh, we try to adhere to all the state and federal laws associated with insurance testing um, and work on behalf of the, the patient. But after you've heard Rick's information, if you have additional information regarding your own uh, case basis, I'll provide you guys with my email address and also my cell phone number, and feel free to call me and we can talk about your individual case. So my email address is john, J-O-H-N, dot L-I-N-N-A-N at Cortigen, C-O-U-R-T-A-G-E-N dot com, and my cell phone number is 603-560-1320. Uh, feel free to call me about your individual case, and um, we can try to walk you through that and get as much information as we can as possible. 
Thank you, John, and thank you for sharing that. And for some of you who had very specific questions that were not addressed today, um, it would be more appropriate for those specific questions with um, with a detailed or complicated history or very specific um, gene questions to engage in those questions over email. You can also email me, director at mitoaction.org, if that's easier for you, and I'll be happy to pass those questions along to um, to John and to Dr. Bowles as appropriate as well. Uh, we are going to open the lines for questions, but I had one more, uh, a couple more that came in over um, email and another um, qualifying point. Uh, going back to your discussion, Dr. Bowles, you mentioned that, you know, it's the law that the doctor orders the test. Can you talk a little bit also about the process and policy of the test results? Who gets those first? Do the patients have access to them? What happens to the patient sample? Is it run again later as the um, mitocarda is updated? Can you talk to that point a little bit? Um, I can answer some of those. Um, First of all, with the caveat that this is the new field and, you know, what we know today and understand today is going to be infinitely less than what we hopefully will in the next couple of years. Um, we do keep the sample, and, I mean, if there's more tests that need to be run later or something, that we, you know, we'll have that if there's something that's a validation or whatever. Um, in, in terms of the, of the information, um, it's given back to the physician. Um, we're, again, we're automating everything. We're going to have an app on an iPad so that they can just press the button and they can get the information very easily. Um, the physician can contact me or somebody else at Cortigen regarding the information. Um, again, this is all federal law that results are not given, you know, directly to, to patients. But after it's given to the physician, then, I mean, the, the patient can get it from there. Great. Thank you. Um, Christy, there's one additional uh, item with that. Um, for a patient that has run the test, we've identified the genes, so we wouldn't necessarily need to rerun that test. Um, but what we do is as our database is automated with additional research on genes that are currently not known, but let's say six months from now are known, we continue to re-search uh, those same reports back through our internal database. And if a gene in the market has been identified by a researcher that was previously unknown for a patient that is in our database, we will automatically pull that out. And if it's something that affects the, um, the patient information, another report will be generated and sent back out to the physician. That's pretty remarkable, I think, to be, you know, to, to not be in that um, place where, well, I had the test, it was inconclusive, so now I'm done, basically. You know, it, it, it helps with the inconclusives, and the other thing it helps against is it allows us to search phenotypes and genes against other patients with the same phenotype and genes. And in some cases, we may come across a rare gene associated with a phenotype that is in our internal database that also allows us to compare. So it gives us an additional resource point for identifying those rare, rare unique genes. And another question that a couple people have asked is, what's the difference between testing 
um, a smaller subset of genes as opposed to the whole exome. So this must be uh, something that's really a buzzword right now. Can you define that and talk about that? Um, I tried to go over that a little bit, but you're right. I mean, it, it is very complicated. The exome is all of the genes, um, all 22,000. So that includes the mitocardia genes of the 1,100. So you say, well, why should I do 1,100 when I can get the other 21,000 genes? Um, well, the technology is different. The one that we use has 95% plus coverage, while the exome, while you're getting all the genes, you're getting coverage, you know, about two-thirds of the mutations will be found instead of over 95%. Again, I, I've gone over that you have to do the square of that to determine how many you're going to miss um, because you have to find both of them. The other thing is that when you're going through and you're doing exome, you really you, you change your filters. You would have 10,000 variants using the filters that we use. So you only look for something that totally, completely knocks out the protein. So if, if your child has lactic acidosis and died in the first few days of life, probably the mutation is really severe and knocks out the protein entirely. And you probably, you, you maybe 50-50 would find that on exome. But um, if it's more mild disease, it's probably not knocking out the protein function, but it's decreasing the function, and you're not going to find that in exome. So, I mean, they each have their, their standpoint. If your child, they really don't know. It may be mitochondrial. It may not be mitochondrial. No one really has any idea, and the, and the child is severely affected. Exome's better for you. But if, if everybody's saying this looks mitochondrial, there's data to suggest it's mitochondrial disease. We just don't know which one, and the child is not extremely severe then I don't think I've seen find it. I mean, it might, but the chance is small. And the, um, this technology that we're talking about is much more better. Do you feel like this will replace muscle biopsy? We're hoping. Um, I don't see much of a use for muscle biopsy in most situations. Uh, I'll give you one example in which muscle biopsy is still important. If a patient has very severe muscle disease, muscle disease is the major problem with the patient. You test it for everything you can, like fish and muscular dystrophy and things like that. It's not there. It may be mitochondrial. It may not. Muscle biopsy can help determine, you know, is it mitochondrial? Is it not? What other disease might it be? But, you know, th those are, are few and far between these days. We're hoping that muscle biopsy becomes, you know, something that's not used very often, a, a part of the past. We want these tests to replace everything, um, all the testing that that was done before, um, and that is you, you order the test and you check all the genes. Great. Thank you. So uh, I think we're ready to open the lines for questions for the next 15 minutes or so. Um, I will remind everyone to two things. Uh, first, you can use star six to mute and unmute your line, so please do that so that it helps us keep this nice, clear call quality when so many people are on the phone. And the second is that for the sake of your own privacy, please don't share a lot of your own personal family history. Um, this is a recorded call, and so I encourage you to keep your question um, rather broad, yet asking the point that you're interested in. And if you have more detailed questions or feel that your question just doesn't do justice if you don't have the opportunity to share a little bit more history, I encourage you to, to do that by email um, to me or to John, who gave his email address earlier, um, for, your, for your own sake. So um, I'm going to unmute the call now and let everyone, and we'll just uh, take turns asking this question. Okay, so bear with me one second while you hear a couple beeps.
Okay, so uh, who would like to ask our first question? Uh, this is Gita, if I may go first. Go ahead, Gita. Okay. Uh, Dr. Bowles, I have two questions. The first is, uh, it's pretty difficult to get an autistic child to spit, so is it possible to do the tests in blood? Yes. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> and my second question is, um, it, I'll try to phrase this as fast as I can. How sure are we that mitochondrial disease is largely a monogenic, single, is caused by a single gene? Uh, are we certain of that? Or is it essentially a matter of definition at this point, and it could be caused by combinations of genes for all we know? When you get the experts together, like we did at the NIH just a few months ago, we can't agree on what mitochondrial diseases. So, I impression. That's what I was asking. Clearly, some of it's myogenic, and clearly some of it's not. My guess is 50-50, but I don't know if it's, you know, 37 year what. We're looking at both. And at this point, the myogenic ones are the ones that we're going to be able to make a diagnosis on quickly, but there are some patients that we found things that look like they were, that they were polygenic, that I, you know, said, well, this looks like it might be part of it. You might want to consider this therapy, but we don't know. Um, so we're looking at that, but really, to be honest, most of the polygenic data is going to come out later. Um, when we start to mine the data that we're getting. And we won't be able to mine the data until we get the data. So it's sort of a catch-22. Uh, thank you. And then I guess the, the, and this is my last question, the follow-on is, does the degree of coverage make a difference in being able to uh, know um, whether you have something polygenic or not? Well, um, the degree of coverage is if you're going to find it or not. That's right. I mean, if, if the coverage is, is 65%, that means 35% of the mutations will be missed. We, we won't find them at all. We won't even know about them. So, I mean, if, you, if you're missing a bunch of them, then it's going to be very difficult to throw it into a computer and figure out what's going on when you're missing so much. So, yeah, I mean, the degree of coverage makes a great deal when we're trying to... I mean, if, if, if every third patient you have missed a mutation... Um, it's going to be difficult for the computer to make inferences later, so it makes a great deal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right, let me just remind everyone again to use star six to mute your line just to help us be able to hear as fair as possible. Who would like to ask another question? Uh -huh. um, if, if you have um, um, done the mitochondrial DNA, sequencing, and it came up with, um, you know, maybe some things that were of unknown significance, would you at that point suggest doing the, the next sequencing? Generally, yes. Um, if you're, well, let, me, let me put a little bit of caveat on it. If your family is not obviously maternally inherited, you do the mitochondrial sequencing, you don't really find anything that's all that helpful, the nuclear one is the, the next obvious step. If your family is obviously maternally inherited, I mean, that's clearly what the problem is. Um, the nuke sequence test might also help in finding the variants that, um, that cause some people in the family to have much more disease than others. Right. You know, so that information, though, is probably going to need to come out of the mining, though, and it may not be, a, you know, something that when we get the test result, we say, aha, this is likely the situation is. But the more I know about the family, the better. If you put on the, and it doesn't need to be pages and pages. It can be, you know, very strongly maternally inherited. Here's the pedigree. 
you know, some patients, some people in the family are less than others. We did the mitochondrial DNA sequencing. This is what we found. We're looking to, to do the nuclear sequencing to see if we can, you know, figure out more information. Then I can say, okay, I know what I'm looking for, and then I'll look for some variants that might give me some ideas to what, you know, causes the disease to be worse in some family members than others. See if there's anything I can find that might help. Right, because we do have multiple affected members, but everybody has different things going on, so. I mean, it, it, it might help, it might not. I mean, that's one of the exciting things that I'm doing right now. To, to be honest, it's, it's somewhat investigational because, you know, it's only been done a few times. So, but we may find something. You don't know. All right. Uh, okay, I have a good question that came in through email. Uh, and that question is, how do you know when you see the genetic uh, test results what that relates to in terms of the respiratory chain defect complex so that, you know, many patients now have a decision they say, my diagnosis is complex one and four, for example. So uh, now no. that we're moving genetics, that information is really important because I'll look at the sequence and I'll say, okay, you know, the, the computer predicts that there's a mutation in this gene, and this gene affects it, say, for example, complex 3. This is something that happened actually last week. And then, okay, if this is correct, I would predict that complex 3 would be abnormal in the patient. So then, you, then I look at the biochemical data, if we have that data, which unfortunately we don't in most cases, and say, okay, there's complex 3 deficiency. It looks like this molecular data has been confirmed. Or if you say, oh, no, it's complex 1, you're saying, well, this is probably not important here. So it is important to integrate that. More often than not, what we're having to do is having to recontact the physicians and give it to get more information, and that just slows the whole process down. Um, and sometimes we don't get that information, and then we can't use it. But the information in regards to if a biopsy was done can be helpful in interpretation. I'm not suggesting you guys get a biopsy to do that, for, but if there is biopsy data, that can be helpful. And I guess the question I would have as an advocate for the patients then would be when you are facing this, you know, roadmap of tests, at what point is it appropriate to do this test as opposed to gather a bigger clinical picture before you go down this road? I, you know, a, a lot of physician experts in this area have asked that question, and we debated it at the NIH. Um, there's two different philosophies among the experts. One is you do it up front because you get a tremendous amount of information up front. You may not need anything more. And the other one is, well, you do everything else first, and then you go to this. Um, the experts are on both sides. I tend to, I, I tend to kind of split it down the middle. Um, I, I mean, I have this technology for my patients. I can, and so I, I usually get some biochemical tests first because I want to make sure that it's mitochondrial. I don't want to go down the wrong road and miss a disease or something else. I see patients with all sorts of diseases that are not mitochondrial that I follow in my clinic as well. Um, so I get enough tests to confirm to myself that it is mitochondrial and that I rule out everything else that, that might be as, as well. And then I go straight to this technology. I don't go through, you know, well, it's sequence surf and then it's sequence whole gamma and let's go sequence that because that, all that stuff will be done when you do this. Um, so I kind of go down the middle of the road. Instead of doing it the first thing or the last thing, I do it like, you know, the second thing after doing the, after convincing myself it's mitochondrial, rule out everything else. 
or likely to be. I mean, you can't, it's not 100%. If I say, well, it looks like mitochondrial and I can't find anything else, then I'm there. Thank you, Dr. Bowles. So uh, we may have time for one or two short questions. Anyone else like to ask a question? Dr. Bowles, how does the technique that you've just described compare to what your competitors are calling expanded DNA sequencing? This is expanded DNA sequencing. Uh, what people are doing now changes, you know, by the moment. And what I saw on the website a week ago may not be the current technologies. But I know that, I mean, one of our major competitors is offering expanded DNA sequencing, and they look at it about 100 genes, 100, 120. I don't know what it is today. Um, and another one is looking at 500-plus genes, somewhere between 500 and 600. And, um, but there's nobody that's doing the entire mitochondria at this point except for cortisone, although that will probably change. So this is expanded DNA sequencing. Thank you. And uh, another question? Anyone have another question? I think that's a great sign because that means that we have covered a lot of material and answered folks' questions is really fantastic. So uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to just thank you, uh, Dr. Bowles, and thank you, John, and thank you, Cortigen, for the, the work that you're doing behind the scenes and the incredible amount of effort that your team is putting into helping um, crack the code for our patient and family community. Uh, do either of you have any closing comments that you'd like to share at this point? Um, the only thing is, is that, I mean, this, this is, I've been in the field now 20 years, and this is really the most exciting I've ever been about it, is that we really have the ability now to look at some of those questions that people have been asking for a long time. And, you know, we don't have all of the wisdom and knowledge yet by any means, but I'm, I'm really hoping in the next few years that we'll be able to do a lot more for your children and for yourselves than we can right now. And we're still in infancy, so we're not going to have all questions answered tomorrow, but we're working on it. Thank you. And, John, any closing comments on your end? No, I think we're we're good over here, Corson. Great. So, uh, so thank you guys so much. Please join me in thanking Dr. Bowles and uh, for his time today. And if, again, uh, it sounds like we have an opportunity to do some follow-up by email. So please feel free to do that. I will work on posting this recording on the website this afternoon. There's so much content that it's probably worthwhile to go back and listen again to um, process. And uh, I will mention also that next month we, you know, it's the most exciting month of the year for all of us who work um, on awareness for mitochondrial disease because September is our biggest awareness effort, particularly the third week in September is awareness week. And uh, in Boston, we're kicking that off with a MitoAction Walk in 5K. So I'm hoping that any of you who are in New England can attend or um, even would like to come in from out of town. And uh, if you're interested in activities for Awareness Week, uh, we'd be yeah. delighted to send you an awareness kit to help you spread the word to some folks um, during that week or help you with some ideas so you can email us about that as well. Uh, thank you guys so much, and I uh, hope you all have a great rest of the month. Take care. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.